Hey, Cross Connection, it's good to be with you um, online, virtually right now, as we pick up our studies in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and we're gonna be in chapter 20 this morning. Um, if you go ahead and turn there, um, if you have your Bibles or your tablets with you, um, wherever you are at, I wanna welcome you to Cross Connection Church. If you are new or visiting or tuning in for the first time, it's uh, great to have you with us. Um, we've been going through um, the study in the book of Deuteronomy for quite some time now. And we finally are at Deuteronomy 20. We're uh, chugging our way right through it. And as we've seen um, in Deuteronomy, I'll give a brief overview here. This is Moses' second reading of the law to the people of Israel, right before they're about to enter into the promised land. So they're just giving another overview of the law of God, God's expectations for his kids. And essentially the way I look at it as a parent, I have certain expectations for my, my kid. I have a two-year-old daughter and I have expectations for how she's gonna act out in public, out at the store, at church, at home. And oftentimes those expectations are pretty much the same. You need to be obedient. You need to you know, represent us well and uh, not get into fits. Um, so we as parents, no matter what household you grew up in, your parents had some kind of expectations for you growing up. And just like we do as parents have expectations for our children, God has expectations for his children and ways that we're supposed to behave and govern ourselves and to, to live in this world right now. Um, and when we get off of that, we get misaligned with um, God's expectations for how we're supposed to live or what you might call the law of God, then there's consequences, right? So in the first 10 chapters, chapters one through 10 of Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding the people of Israel um, of the mistakes that their parents actually made, um, of the mistakes of the previous generations. And basically what Moses is trying to get drill into their heads is that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And uh, Hebrews chapter two, verse one says this, it says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So if you are a Christian right now tuning in, I wanna encourage you, spend time in the Word, spend good time in the Word, and make sure that you're learning from the mistakes of the people in the past. Um, and especially as you study the scripture, it's different than any other ancient text out there in the fact that the, the kings and the people of God are portrayed in a very, very realistic light. Their mistakes are right there in the open. Um, their good times and their bad times are just as clearly written about all throughout the scriptures. Um, whereas you look at other texts of different people groups, um, especially in the ancient Near East, um, and oftentimes those people were portrayed as, uh, as better, right? They're portrayed better than they actually were. Um, but God reminds us very much so that his people, the Jews, the people of Israel, were very much like us. They made mistakes, they wandered away from God, and he brought them back. So the first 10 chapters were basically Moses reminding the people, don't make the same mistakes your parents made. And I think that's uh, good advice even today. Chapter 11 on, from, from chapter 11 on, Moses is then instructing and preparing the people to enter into the promised land. Um, he, the, he's giving them a blessing uh, and obedience. Um, he's instructing them on that. He's instructing them on what worship was to look like. He's instructing them on how God felt about false gods, um, little g gods, um, the idols um, that the foreign nations around Israel would be worshiping at this time. And we'll be talking a little bit about that today as well. And how to live for God with all of your life is addressed in chapters 11 on. Um, and of course, God talks about being the source of true wisdom is found, it's found in his word, right? The source of true wisdom is found in the word of God. So last week in Deuteronomy 19, 
we looked at God's justice system, right? We looked at how God just wanted his people to operate um, justly and how we were to um, self-govern ourselves, basically, how to um, deal with injustices. So while there was no standing police force at the, at the time Moses was giving the, the law of God to Deuteron you know, in Deuteronomy, he's writing down the law of God and delivering it to the people of God, there was no standing police force because the people were responsible to govern themselves. And that happened because there were strong family structures and within the family we govern ourselves, right? But then in society there was also expectations that we could not steal, kill, um, lie, cheat. There was a lot of other things that you could not do and if you did those things there was consequences and the people were charged with self-governance. It was really the first form of a republic, if you will. So um, God last week um, also instituted something that if you hopefully remember, if you don't, please go back and listen to Pastor Miles as he talked about the city of refuge. Um, the city of refuge um, were cities where if you accidentally killed somebody and their family was coming after you for vengeance, then you could run to these cities of refuge and, and basically seek shelter there and uh, to where they could not kill you in those cities of refuge. So as the people were moving into the promised land, these cities of refuge had to be established right away. And it's such a great picture um, foreshadowing Jesus, really, that he is um, always near to us. Um, he's our place of safety and our place of refuge, that we don't need to climb through, you know, over mountains um, or wade through rivers to get to cities of refuge, because remember the cities of refuge had to be easily accessible. Jesus is easily accessible to you and to me today. Um, he did all of the work. We simply need to turn to him and, and go to him. So um, some brief encouragement and just an overview of Deuteronomy 19. Um, now today, um, as we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 20, God is shifting to instructing his people about how to deal with warfare. Right? Whereas before, it was a lot of it was internal focused. Right? How do you deal with injustices um, within your own people? Um, what are you supposed to do? What's the process? Now it's, well, how do we deal with conflict outside of our walls, outside of our people, outside of our nation? How do we deal with um, when, when somebody wants to come and war against us or when God commands them to go into the promised land, he says, you're going to take all of this land and that means that the people that are there can't be there anymore because I'm giving this land to you. So what were God's rules for warfare, right? We, I mean, our nation is a, a nation that I think is pretty familiar with warfare, although I do encourage us this morning not to read into scriptures, especially scriptures written um, in the ancient Near East, close to 4,000 years ago, um, with our cultural lens, right? With our values and ideas and beliefs that we want to superimpose over what the scripture has to say. Because oftentimes we do that when we open up the Bible and we say, we look at the scripture through our values and our expectations and, and uh and we say, like, how could they possibly have lived like this? That was awful. How could God allow these things to happen? And we have to remember that context is king when we are looking at scriptures. Um, if you haven't already, Pastor Miles is going to be doing a How to Study Your Bible class here um, coming up. And I will uh, just give it another plug right now because this is so important that we, when we study the scriptures, we really dig, dig into the context who the author is writing to, what kind of writing the author is doing. There's a lot of different types of narrative writing in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, what times were like back then, what was normal back then, and why God's word was so 
essentially abnormal or different than any other expectations of the culture at the time, really. What God was telling to those people, and then we can start to look at what does that mean for us today. I think part of the reason that we struggle so much in reading the scriptures, especially scriptures like Deuteronomy chapter 20, where it talks about rules for warfare, um, is that, well, we have our own expectations for what warfare should and shouldn't look like today. Um, and yet we also have to realize that there's a difference between our culture now that's very individualistic in the West and the culture then, which was very collective-minded, meaning that when you saw yourself, you didn't just see yourself as an individual, you saw yourself as connected to a family, to a tribe, to a nation. Um, you thought you were very much, it was more collective identity back then, and you found your purpose and your meaning much more in a collective sense than in an individual sense. So you were in the, uh, in the Old Testament, you would have been a king because your dad was a king, right? And in the case of the people of Israel, you would have been a priest because you were born into the tribe of Levi um, or into the priestly tribe. So you were a descendant of Levi. That was the only reason that you were a priest. Today, however, we're very uncomfortable with what I would call unchosen obligations. Um, in the culture of the ancient Near East, if you went off to war it was, and you were a man, it was expected that you were going to go fight. And we'll talk about a little bit uh, more as we dive into Deuteronomy 20. There was really only four reasons that you couldn't go fight. Um, and those were good reasons as well. But war, priesthood, kings, all unchosen obligations, yet we are obligated to, to fulfill those roles. Um, today, we might look at it and say, well, as a man, do I, you know, the scriptures do tell me that I have certain obligations that I may not have chosen because I did not choose to be a man, but God has given to me, right? God has given to me in my family and in society. Um, not everything is about you. I know it might hurt to say that, but I'm, I'm here to preach to you and to give you good news of Jesus Christ and to tell you how God instructs his people and deals with his people. Not everything is about you. And in fact, when we look at this scripture here, it's all about God. It's all about Jesus. Here at Cross Connection Church, it's all about Jesus. It's all about how we can get together to live life in connection with God, one another, and the world through Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. God wants to invite you today into something that's greater, his kingdom work on this earth. So when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, the first instructions here are given actually, um, it's, it's what I would call the heart for the battle. It's, it's instructing the soldiers to have the heart for the battle. Um, and it starts off like this. It says in verse 1, when you go out to war against your enemies. Notice, notice this. It does not say if. It does not say if you go out to war against your enemy. It is a guarantee, right? God is guaranteeing to these young Jewish men, these soldiers, this nation, that they are going to encounter conflict. They're going to encounter wars. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and armies larger than your own, you should not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when, again, not if, but when, you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for the battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. You see, before there can be any 
physical or practical, what we might like to call practical preparation for a battle. It's important that God sees that there's a greater need. And that greater need for the soldier is the spiritual preparation, actually. Why is that? Because soldiers today, even today, soldiers know that when they go off to war, when they're deployed, they're facing a battle and they're facing death. And if you're not ready to face death head on, with confidence spiritually to know where you're at, then you are not going to be a very good soldier. Now, What's interesting, though, is that it's the priest's job to encourage these soldiers before the battle. The priests are to remind these soldiers that God is for you. God is going to fight for you. He's going to, he is going to give you the victory. And he's saying, you might see that these armies are bigger than you. They're stronger than you. They have better tactics than you. They have um, more equipment than you. They have more chariots and horses than you. They are more prepared than you. They um, are faster than you. They're everything better than you. You're going to see that, and there's going to be a natural reaction to fear. Right? There's going to be a natural reaction to fear. And these priests were given the job of encouraging the soldiers before the battle. Now, I think that's, that's an actually really encouraging to me um, as a chaplain, even. Why do I say that? Because oftentimes in church ministries, we often forget that chaplaincy is a very real ministry that's been performed all throughout world wars, and um, has been, played a very, very significant role in encouraging troops in the middle of the battlefield. See, chaplains, chaplains, chaplains and I do encourage you, Church Cross Connection, we should be praying for chaplains, not just chaplains like Miles and I who work with the fire and the police departments, but also chaplains that are working with our armed forces. They're going out, they're deploying with our armed forces, and they're going out and they're seeing the battle and they're seeing the, the soldiers, and they are the ones that are ministering in a place that we, the church, cannot go. Behind a, a place uh, that is behind lock and key, really. Special access is needed. You see, not anybody can just go into the police station and start ministering to police officers, go into the fire stations and minister to firefighters. You need access into those places, and it's important that we pray for those who have access, who are ministering specially to those people. Why? Because it's a stressful job anytime you're going to war. You see, at the beginning of World War II, it was pretty well known that, as the Bible talks about here in Deuteronomy 20, that there must be a spiritual preparation and encouragement before going off to battle. And interestingly enough, at the beginning of World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt, in partnership with the Gideons, issued pocket New Testament Bibles to our troops. And in these pocket New Testament Bibles, and you open up the first page, there is a, a pre preface from President Roosevelt that says this. It says, the White House is the title, up at the top there, from the White House. As Commander-in-Chief, I take great pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who serve in the armed forces of the United States. Throughout the centuries, Men of many faiths and diverse origins have found in the sacred book wisdom, words of wisdom, counsel, and inspiration. It is a foundation of strength and now, as always, an aid to attaining the highest aspirations of the human soul. Signed, President Franklin Roosevelt. You see, I think President Roosevelt knew his scriptures. You see, in fact, if you go back, and I would encourage you to possibly read his first inaugurational address um, in 1933, in which uh, we might remember the famous line that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. 
but I think he understood that there was a spiritual preparation needed for these soldiers and that going into battle meant that you were going to face death and you needed to be spiritually prepared to be a good soldier. The priests were to tell the troops, Hear, O Israel. Remember, this Hear, O Israel would actually have been uh, very similar to the way that the Shema started in, in Deuteronomy, which would have been, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. In his case, it's, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for the battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, because the Lord your God is with you. That is some incredible encouragement. He's saying, do not look at them. Do not look at this battle as a, man, a battle between man and man, but it's a God, battle between God and man, and you are on God's side. Now, see, as I was preparing for this message, I was actually um, pretty shocked. You know, when you, when you think about what it, what it takes to go into battle and what, um, what troops really do experience in war. The brutality of war, the evils of war, the, the politics of war even. And you know, as a nation today, we, we can be pretty uh, on the edge about where we're at in the world. The world is, is a shaky place right now. I want to encourage you, church, God is on our side. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. He is with us. He will fight for us. The church has never died and it never will. The mission, and the, the mission of the church, the purpose of the church, has not stopped. In fact, it is even greater today that we get the good news of Jesus Christ out than any other time in history. Point number one, though, is this. The heart of the army is more important than its size. The heart of the army is more important than its size. You see, what do I mean by the heart? These, the priest's job was to turn the hearts of these soldiers to God. It was to remind them that God himself was fighting for them. There it means that nothing was impossible. This was to remind them that this is the God who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them out of the greatest nation and the greatest army ever. And then this nation was backed up to the Red Sea, and what did God do? God parted that Red Sea, and they passed through on dry land. Countless time and time again, God protected and saved his people. This is the God that fights for you. This is the God who wants a relationship with you. The heart of the army is more important than its size. These soldiers that know God and trust in him are going to be a fighting force that none, none can possibly match. For if God is for us, who can stand against us? We are never alone in the battles that we face. But, you see, right almost in the next couple verses there, it's like, hey, okay, so uh, now that you've encouraged all the troops, start sending some home. And you're like, what? That's not a very great battle strategy. Let's send all of our troops home. Here's the reason. As we, as we get into this, I think uh, in, in James chapter 1, verse 8, it says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And in 2 Timothy 2, verse 4, says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So we have the encouragement from the priests. Um, and that encouragement from the priests is, uh, again, while chaplaincy is never directly mentioned in the scriptures, um, the picture of chaplaincy right there is given by these priests encouraging the soldiers and ministering to them, I might add. 
2 Timothy 2.4 is that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is the one is to please the one who enlisted him. Point number two on your outlines is a good soldier is fearless, faithful, and focused on God's plan. Fearless, faithful, and focused on God's plan. In verse 5, it says, Is there any man among you who has built a new house and has not dedicated it yet? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. You see, when you're off to war and you're on the battlefield, the last thing you want to be thinking about is, man, I didn't finish my roof. You know, if it rains, my whole house is just going to fall down. Like, I didn't finish, I, you know, the last thing you want to be thinking about is, I didn't, I can't believe it, I just started this, this building project. But it wasn't so much that, oh, my house might fall down, it's that my family needs to be protected and cared for while I'm away. Right? Having a chance to live in a house and enjoy it is important. God's saying to these young men, if you have started building a house but you haven't lived in it or enjoyed it yet, you haven't finished it, go home and take care of that first before you go to your battle. Why? I would argue with you this morning that our first ministry, scripturally, biblically, is our family. Our first ministry is our family, and keeping our priorities in order is of the utmost importance. And that would be, of course, keeping our priority God, focused on God first, God above all else, right? That we are dedicated and solely and completely to God, right? The one who has numbered our days, who has counted the hairs on our head, who knows our thoughts. Our focus and dedication needs to be to Him. Our love needs to be to Him first. But then the next one would be our spouse if you're married and your family your kids, your family and your kids. And then it could be your, your job or your ministry. But you see, there has to be priorities and every single time that you get those priorities out of line, bad things happen. Every single time those priorities get out of order, the consequences are devastating, not just to you, but there's going to be a ring of people around you that are all affected by that, your family and friends, job, your ministry, everything else will be affected by that. If our home isn't in order, we have no business being in the battle. God is concerned about our home. The family needs this man more than the battle did. But then the second one was, if any man has planted a vineyard and has not yet enjoyed or tasted its fruits. This is the man that's done all of the work, right? He's planted the vineyard and he's tended the vineyard, um, but he has not yet tasted the fruit of its labor. God is not only calling men, in this case, to be the spiritual head of the home, but also the provider for the home, right? If you're not providing food for your family, if you're not providing for your family, again, as men, you might say, well, I didn't choose that. Well, it's God gave us that obligation and we need to do it. The Bible says that the man who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Now just think about that for just a minute. It's a blessing and a high calling to be these things. right? These obligations that we've been given by God are a blessing and a high calling to take care of our family, to take care of our spouse before we go off to battle. Is any man newly wed or engaged? Go home. So you just got engaged and you took off for battle. God says to the young Jewish man, no, take care of your family. Go home. 
You have a year to be defer deferring the battle. In a year we'll talk about war, but right now you're going home because the more important battle is at home. It's more important for you and for our nation that you, young man, go home and be with your new wife and start your family than it is for you to go off to battle. They have more important things to do. Point number three on your outline is this. And this is an important one too. God wants us to enjoy the blessings of life, not just the battles. Over the last three years, I would say that we, you and me, have probably experienced uh, some pretty turbulent times, right? And maybe we've experienced a little bit less of the blessings of life. Or we feel guilty as Christians when we experience the blessings of life, right? We feel guilty as Christians when we experience the blessings of life, whether that's playing on a softball team or going fishing. We can feel guilty about experiencing the blessings of life. God wants you and me to enjoy the blessings of life, not just the battles. God wants us to enjoy our homes, our spouses, and our occupations. I'll say that again. God wants you to enjoy your home, your spouse, your family, and your occupation. God did not want these Jewish men to use the military duty to neglect their family because their responsibility was to provide, protect, and be with them and to enjoy them. These three things, home life, their work life, work ethic, um, what kind of employee they are, and their marriage, those are really three things that if you have those things out of order or if they um, are a mess, your life is going to be very hard. And some of you might be in that position right now and you need to get your life and your, you need to get your house and your life in order. What do I mean by that? I mean, so even when I applied um, to be a chaplain with the police department, I had to go through an, the exact same backgrounds check process that any police officer does. It's an extensive search where they don't just look at me as a moral character, my moral character, but they go back and they say, well, has he been financially responsible or does he have debts that are unpaid? And that he hasn't paid, or do, you know, are do people, uh, you know, how is he? What kind of employee is he at work, right? Do his employees respect him and like him? See, these are all very important things. Do his do his bosses like him, you know, or do they have gripes with him because he doesn't work very hard? These are all very very important things, and when we get our lives out of order, they will all be affected, and you need to have your house in order, guys your job, your finances in order, and your marriage in order. And then, in verse 8, if you are afraid, you see this army that's bigger than you and greater than you and has better weapons than you and better tactics than you and better training than you, and, uh, and they're just stronger and more muscular than you, you see this army that's coming up against you and you think, oh God, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. These guys are holding swords that are just sharpened. They're ready to kill me. They have got death in their eyes. They are ready to kill me. If you're afraid, go home. Fear, I might add, is contagious. Now, I will say this, though. It is completely natural. It is a natural human response, in, at least in a case of battle, to be fearful. Many of you have probably heard of the, the, the theory that you're either, in, in, when you're faced with tough situations, you're either going to fight, you're going to flight, or you're going to freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. 
Fear can either make a soldier incredibly focused and lethal in a battle or completely incapacitated because they freeze when they need to be doing their job to the point where they're useless in battle. But fear is also contagious, meaning that the fear of one man might start affecting the entire regiment, the entire troop, the entire army because they did not send that man home. God says, if you're afraid, go home. I need people, I need men that are focused, that are faithful and focused on God and his plan. It's incredibly important that we have men that are focused and faithful to God and his plan today. Think about Gideon for a minute. When this whole outline here in Deuteronomy 20 actually is the example I think that we can see in um, the, the book of Judges later on where Gideon is hiding in uh, basically a hole in the ground, a wine press, and uh, he's trying to basically separate the grain from the chaff down there where there's no wind because he's fearful because this giant army called the Midianites were out there and what would happen is every single time this ar- the, you know, the Israelites would finish um, their harvest, right, and they'd go out to harvest their, their food, the Midianites would come like, like locusts and they would just torment Israel and take all of their food and then leave them with nothing. So Gideon was scared. And God shows up to Gideon and he says, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like looking around in this cave. Who are you talking to, God, me? God says, you, Gideon, mighty warrior. You're going to deliver my people. He says, no, no, there's no possible way that I can. Well, God ends up getting Gideon in charge of 32,000 men. They're going to go up against the Midian army, right? Uh, The Midianites. And these 32,000 men, God looks at and he says, okay, that's great that you got these 32,000 young Jewish men, young and old, and all of them together, but that's still too many, Gideon. You need to minimize the army. Tell this army, if anyone's scared, to go home. 20,000 men leave. All of a sudden, you're left with 12,000 men. And God continues to whittle down that number. He says, okay, well, why don't you go down to this, go down to the stream and tell all the men to take a drink. Any man that bends down and puts his face in the water in the stream, tell that man that those guys all need to go home. But any man who scoops up the water and brings it up to his mouth, those are the men that I want. 300 men were left out of 32,000. You see, the point of these deferrals was not to, what was in fact to reduce the amount of troops so drastically that the battle, the victory in battle, could only be attributed to God, right? Victory in battle could only be attributed to God. In verse 10, when you draw near to a city to fight it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens up to you, then all of the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hands, you shall put all of its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all of its spoils, you shall take as plunder for yourself. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemy, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do with all of the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But the cities of the people that the Lord is your God is giving you um, as an inheritance, you shall save, save alive nothing that breathes. Nothing that breathes. 
but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they might not teach you to do according to their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so that you do not sin against the Lord your God. So again, we can look at this text and be like, man, that is just, just sounds so barbaric. We have to look at this text in context. First, Jesus says to his fighting men, when you go to a city and that city I'm giving to you, you offer it peace first. You don't go with the heart that's, I'm going to kill every single person in the city. No, you go with the heart that is, our God is extending peace to you. Will you take it? Yahweh himself, he's extending peace to you and he wants to know you. And he, here's an opportunity for you to get to know God. He's extending peace to you. Will you take it? And those who take the peace were saved. You see, I think this is exactly, I think, a, a, a good picture of how God approaches us, me and you. Because ultimately, what does God say about sin is that sin separates us from Him. And that God came for us while we were yet sinners. He died for us. It's the, the picture there is that while we were holding up weapons, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, while we were in rebel open rebellion, like armed rebellion against God, He sent His Son to die for us in that state. We had not laid down our arms yet. We had not surrendered to God yet, but we were in open rebellion against God in a battle against God. Spiritually, it might be, because of our sin nature. And God sent His Son to die for us even while we were in our sin. That's how God approaches us. Sin is war with God, and He comes to us first offering you peace. If you reject Him, then there's judgment. If you take the offering of peace, then you're going to live and you're going to be spared. If you refuse peace, God said to his people, surround the city. Remember, like, like Jericho would be a great example. Surround the city and lay siege to it. Jericho, uh, it was a unique situation in which God commanded his people to march around the city a number of times and blow the trumpets, and then the walls of that city came tumbling down, right? But you see, this type of warfare was new for the people of Israel, siege warfare. And some of these cities had giant walls, up to 30 feet tall, as history now tells us. And you can see why with a 30-foot tall wall and uh, you know rock wall, essentially, and a moat around your city that you would feel rather protected. So some of these cities thought, you know what, no, we don't really want you to take over us, um, your army. Um, why don't you guys, yeah, sorry, just buzz off. And they rejected the offering of peace. And God said, you're going to surround that city, and you're going to wait until the Lord gives it into your hand. Who gives it into your hand? The Lord. Remember when, there, throughout this here, God gets the glory for everything. When we go out to battle, it is not our strength, not our might, not our tactics, not our ability, not our wisdom. It is none of that. It is God. It is the Lord who is going to give this into your hand, lest any of you should boast. Point number four on your outlines. God's people never get to the place where they can stand on their own. God's people never get to the place where they can stand on their own. God needs to get all of the glory. We are completely and wholly reliant on Him for life, for breath, for everything. You realize this is the God who created you and me in our mother's wombs. We are 
made in his image because he formed us out of the dust of the earth as human beings, breathed life into us different than any other creature on this world. He made us in his image and in his likeness because we were more than just meat puppets that were designed like animals. We were spiritual beings meant for eternity with God. With a heart and a soul, with feelings and emotions like God. You see, God's people never get to the place where they can stand on their own, but they are always wholly and completely reliant on Him. When we turn to self-reliance, when we become reliant on ourselves, and we say, my own bank account, my own power, my own strength, my own wisdom, my own cunningness, my own you fill in the blank can protect me, can save me, um, you know, is, is comforting to me. All of those things can fail, but God never will. He's the one that counted the number of hairs on your head and he knows how many more breaths you have left before you go to see him. He's numbered your days. This is the God that we must be wholly and completely reliant on and the Christian is. The mature Christian, I might add, is. Because they look at everything that they have, all of their wealth, all of their possessions, and they say, God, this is all yours. I want to do with it what you would have me do with it. I want to be a blessing and love those around me because you love those around you. You loved us while we were in sinners, while we were yet sinners, Lord. So help me to be a person of peace to the sinner, like you were to me. We must be totally and completely reliant on God. So then you might say, well, then why did God say, okay, if the city refused to surrender and God gives it into your hands, in verse 13, kill all of the males by the sword. Why all the males? Again, we have to look at this in the context. In this day, the women of these cities would have had absolutely zero say in the choice that this city made to reject the offering of peace. Right? These women would have had zero, zero say. Why? Because in that culture, they were to submit to their husbands, and they had a role in the family and in their lives, and they had zero say politically. If there was a decision to accept peace, those women didn't have it, and God wanted to give those women the chance. The other reason would be that if they left all of these men, these enemy men alive, an enemy man alive is going to be an enemy, uh, an enemy forever. They had to kill the men because those men had made a decision. They had rejected the offering of peace, and they knew what they were doing. God only judges those responsible for making the decision. You and me both will be personally judged by all of the personal, individual decisions that we make. God gives everyone the opportunity to know the true and living God. That was his grace in this situation. Here's something for you to consider. That armies of, uh, especially in the ancient Near East, 4,000 years ago, um, a great picture would be the Assyrian army for how warfare was conducted back then and why God's method of warfare was so different, vastly different than any of the surrounding cultures and nations at the time. The Assyrian army was brutal, as were all other armies at the time. What they would do um, with their enemies, with the enemy soldiers that they captured after a battle and they defeated them, they would force those enemy soldiers to go dig up, uh, sometimes, dig up the graves of their ancestors, pull all the bones out, and grind those bones to a dust. That was just one, one of the things that they would make them do. Another thing that they would do with the commanders of the enemy armies is that they would take them to a very public place and with very sharp knives, they would fillet these commanders all of their skin off. 
and then they would hang that skin up on pillars in public places. You think that some of this stuff here is brutal. God is actually putting vast limits on what the people of Israel were able to do with captives, with enemies, and um, especially with women and children who were oftentimes, if not every single time in this culture, in this time, in the ancient Near East, they were going to be slaves and they would have been uh, basically prostituted around. There would have been absolutely no protection for women and children if in an army that you, that you defeated. They were the spoils of war. And God is saying, yeah, they may be the spoils of war, but there's going to be rules now. Because if you take one of their women, you marry her. And that means you protect her. And that means you put a roof over her head and you feed her and you love her. That was vastly different than any other army at the time. God put incredible restrictions on these men. So that would have been some, hopefully some perspective that will help us to see the bigger picture here. That was what God's rules were for engaging enemies outside of the promised land. But then there was different rules for engaging the enemy within the promised land. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, uh, all of the ites that you can think of that were inside the promised land, they had to be destroyed. Anything that breathed, even livestock, had to be destroyed. We know that this did not actually happen because it, they, these people ended up plaguing the people of, of Israel for centuries to come after this. Why were these people commanded to be utterly destroyed? For a good reason. Because for hundreds of years, all of these people had opportunities to repent and they did not. They had opportunities to turn from their wicked ways and they did not. For hundreds of years, they rejected God and turned to idol worship and sorcery and idolatry and uh, paganism. As far as you can imagine, these people were absolutely ruthless. They had chances to repent and turn to God. God does not leave any, you know, he does not wish for any to perish, but all for come to a saving knowledge in him. God's grace does not equal God's permission. What do I mean by that? God's grace does not equal God's permission for you and me. Or well, let's, let's look at the context in Deuteronomy first. Well, for hundreds of years they got away with it and God didn't do anything. Does that, doesn't that mean God was permissible for their, their behavior? He, he allowed it to happen. Because God allows behavior, wicked behavior, to happen for a time does not mean God approves of it. It does not mean that he gives permission to do it. There is coming a judgment one day where we are going to be judged in the throne room of heaven for every single thing that we did. And we might say, well, God, you know, with my family, like, you didn't judge my family even though I was doing X, Y, and Z and I wasn't really faithful to them um, or I wasn't faithful to my spouse. Um, there's coming a judgment where God is going to judge every single thing that you have done. And just because God was gracious with you for so long does not mean that God was giving you permission to do those X, Y, and Z sins. Righteous judgment will always come. And that's a great illustration is the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Parasites, all of the ites that were within the promised land that God committed to total destruction because they had utterly rejected him. And further, God commanded their removal because he knew that the people of Israel would, just be, would become just like them, Right? If you start camping around a bunch of idol worshipers and living next to a bunch of idol worshipers, you're going to end up becoming idol worshipers. Right? We are like sponges as human beings. We soak in people around us. We become like those who we hang out with. 
But you see, God knew his people were especially susceptible to this because at Mount Sinai, when God was giving the law, it was just the people of Israel there. And what did they do? All on their own, without any nation around them to influence them, Moses has gone up on the mountain for 40 days, and what did they do? They pulled, pulled together all of their gold jewelry and make a golden calf to worship, their own idol. It's no wonder that God made them grind that idol to dust and then eat it. We as Christians are called to do something. It's called putting to death the works of the flesh, removing anything within us that causes us to sin. Because, ultimately, we should know the, the truth of the saying that bad company corrupts good morals. Our standard for living today is not the standard of the culture, it's the Bible. Right? I hope that this message here is waking some of us up. The standard for living today is not the culture, it's the Bible for the Christian. We need to put to death the works of the flesh in us and remove anything in our lives that cause us to sin. Are you looking at pornography? Are you um, cheating on somebody? Are you, whatever you're doing, are you, why are you allowing yourself to continue in that practice? Put to death the works of the flesh, which would cause you to sin. Surround yourself with Christians. Join a connect group. Get engaged in church. Start serving. Start showing up regularly. Start reading your scriptures and praying like you mean it. Get your house in order. Our standard for living today is not the culture, it's the Bible. So in conclusion, as we draw a, a quick conclusion here, it's at the end of this section here in Deuteronomy, it does talk about when you're besieging a city not to cut down trees that bear fruit. Now we're out of time, so I can't give you guys too much into that, but really what God is doing is he's giving again more restrictions on the people of Israel that would have been common practice back in, ancient, in the ancient Near East for besieging armies to cut down every tree around there to make weapons of war to make ladders, to make whatever instrument they needed to defeat and besiege that city. So they would cut down any tree around in order to do that. God's saying, leave up any tree that bears fruit because it's profitable, right? And God had a longer-term picture of blessing people and feeding people long-term, right? And he's saying, you army, my God, my army does not need to do the same thing as the other cultures because they have me. My people do not need to rely on the conventional means for victory because they have me. God's people are to wage war differently. They're not to be utterly destructive. So leave what's bearing fruit. In conclusion, what do we need to do to prepare for war, for battle? The battles that we face. We need to have a proper heart. Faith and focus. We need to have a proper heart, a proper faith, and proper focus. We need to have our home, our marriages, our spouses, our lives, our finances. We need to get our lives in order. And we need to be a hundred percent reliant on God for everything. We need to be people that come with peace to those who do not know God sharing with them the love that God has to offer them, the greatness of God, His great love and mercy and grace, not being judgmental and self-righteous with the world. It can be easy to be detached from this text, church. 
and say like, well, I'm not in warfare right now. I'm not a Jew, a young Jewish man that's going off to war. I want you to remember that the very Gentile nations that these ancient Jews were fighting are you and me. Those who were in direct rebellion against God. And yet God chose to sacrifice his only son to have a relationship with us that we might live. Because in God's grace, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. For those who were rebellious, so that we should believe in Jesus and not perish but have everlasting life. I hope that you today can look death in the face and say, I have everlasting life and my God is for me, so who can be against me? And if you don't, I pray that you would really st strongly believe in Jesus Christ. Turn to him, repent of your sins, be forgiven, and follow him the rest of your days. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for this time in your word. Lord, for the rules of warfare that you gave your people. Lord, the restrictions you gave them so they didn't become the barbarians that the surrounding nation and the culture was accepting of, Lord. But Lord, you put in place protections for women and children, protections for livestock and even for trees, Lord, that bore fruit. Father, the battles that we face today may be greatly different than the battles that were faced by, by these men thousands of years ago. But as your word says, nothing is new under the sun. And Father, I do pray that for the battles that we face today, that you would help us to be good soldiers for you. Lord, because we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, of this dark age. And Lord, until you come again, you've given us the great mission and the, and the job, Lord, the obligation and the joyous task of sharing your good news with the lost and the dying and the rebellious. Help us to be people of peace, Lord, and may our representation of you and our declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, sway hearts and minds as your Holy Spirit softens them that many should be saved, Lord, that none should perish. This is our hope this morning, Lord. This is where we put our trust in you and our hope in you. And I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.